Greetings from uh, Dublin, where we're finishing up another great IMAST session. I have the privilege of being joined with Andrew Chan, who is a neurosurgeon in New York City, and most recently was named the White Cloud Best Clinical Paper Award winner. Um, he's here to talk about that research with us. So, Andrew, tell us a little about your paper. What was the title? So the title was Decompression with or Without Fusion for Grade 1 Degenerative Lumbar Spondylolisthesis, a 60-month analysis from the Quality Outcomes Database. Very good. So uh, I guess maybe for the listeners, could you give us a little synopsis of your research and some of the conclusions? Sure. You know, from a big picture standpoint, we know that there's been quite a few studies, including some randomized controlled trials now, on comparing decompression alone versus decompression with fusion for grade 1 degenerative lumbar spondylolisthesis. And despite these studies, the jury's still really out regarding which procedure is better and if the addition of fusion is necessary in these patients. So what we had is we had access to the QOD spine registry, and in that registry we have 12 high-enrolling sites that combine their data for an augmented data set, and we have a cohort that we've been following that has grade 1 degenerative lumbar spondylolisthesis, and we followed this cohort now prospectively for 60 months, so we're able to now have a very long-term comparison of decompression alone and decompression with fusion for this exact study question. Interesting. And so what, are you, what were the conclusions you think you're going to take away in your practice now? Yeah, so the main findings were, of course, this is a prospective registry. It's not a randomized controlled trial. So there's going to be surgeons selecting patients for the type of surgery they think is best for these patients. So, again, there's some patients that would get decompression for certain reasons. There's some patients that would get decompression and fusion for certain reasons. And because of that, the groups are going to be somewhat different. But despite multivariable adjusted analyses with uh, the two cohorts at baseline, the addition of fusion was associated with significant benefits, and they were associated with significant benefits for 60-month leg pain and two times the odds of reaching ODI, MCID, and NAS satisfaction. So that six-month follow-up is pretty impressive for a lot of these studies. Was the benefit present throughout the time period, or was there changes over those five years? That's a great question. So we've now published our first-year data. We've published our two-year data. We haven't yet published the 60-month data yet, but we actually saw benefit to fusion at both the one- and two-year time points for ODI-MCID. So this is basically a continuation of that up to 60 months. And will this continue on further past 60 months? Yeah, so this study group, um, we're continuing to follow our patients out. The plan is to follow these patients out at least till 10 years. Oh, wow. You know, it's a really coordinated effort among these 12 sites. It requires clinical research coordinators, a coordinated study group to really oversee all of this. We also have a central team that oversees all of this as well. Um, and so this is the only thing that makes this possible. So just maybe for the listeners a little bit, so it's the QOD study group. Could you tell us a little more about what the QOD is? Yeah, so the QOD is the spine registry that was basically started to basically use our outcomes to our benefit. So one, as benchmarking, but also to inform our practice and actually utilize data science for patient care. And so this was started over a decade ago, and they had several modules, including the lumbar spine module. So for this module, there's over you know, 100 centers, and they've collected data on patients for over 100,000 patients. Wow. But this specific cohort is a group of 12 high-enrolling sites that connected their data together and then added additional augmented data points, including some radiographic parameters, and then have been following these patients prospectively since. So for this study, for example, we included all patients enrolled for grade 1 degenerative lumbar spondylolisthesis from 2014 through 2016. All right, very good. Um, maybe change gears for a second. You have a good time in IMAST? Oh, it's an excellent time. Yeah. Dublin's a great location for the meeting, and this meeting is always great. It talks about innovative techniques. That's really been the theme since its inception, and continuing to do so 30 years later is fantastic. All right, and this, I believe that most research is sort of more of an army than an individual effort. 
or anybody in your project you want to give uh, sort of contributions to? It, it, there's so many people. So this represents, you know, I, I get the honor of having the award, but it really represents the effort of the entire study group. And, you know, from the inception of the study group uh, and the QOD registry with Dr. Tony Asher, and then also all the individuals that support the study group being possible, including Dr. Christopher Shaffrey, Dr. Steve Glassman, uh, Dr. Reg Hage as well. And then also the people that actually spearhead the study group itself. You know, Dr. Praveen Mumaneni is instrumental to this. He's really been the one, this is the fruit of his labor, is the study group. And then those who continue to run on day to day, including him, uh, Dr. Erica Bisson and Dr. Mohammed Biden as well. This is all a reflection of all the work they've done. Also, all the 12 study site PIs uh, that continue to contribute their patients, make sure that they contribute efforts to have staff that follow up with the patients, ensure our high 80% follow-up rates, even out to 60 months. It's really all a reflection of their work, all our clinical research managers as well and coordinators as well. Well, very good. Again, congratulations on winning the uh, White Cloud Best Clinical Paper, and we look forward to that paper being published soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. Every day. All right. Thank you, everyone, for sticking around. We are going to continue with this edition of the Scoliosis Dialogues, where we speak with Dr. Daryl Lau from NYU Department of Neurosurgery about his White Cloud award-winning paper. Uh, this was the best paper in the basic science and translational uh, paper presentations at the most recent 30th International Meeting on Advanced Spine Techniques, or IMAST, which was held in Dublin, Ireland just last month. Um, so the paper that we're discussing is Dr. Lau's presentation of What Are We Transfusing? A Prospective Trial Evaluating the Quality of Intraoperatively Salvaged Red Blood Cells in Spinal Deformity Surgery. Uh, Dr. Lau, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Thank you for agreeing to do the podcast with us. Yeah, it's great to be here, and it's an honor to you know be awarded the White Cloud Award. It's a pretty prestigious award, and um, just being part of the IMAST event is is honor itself. And it's no small thing. Um, an incredible list of nominees, but you came out on top. Um, and so, give us a little bit of background uh, about you personally, uh, your training, and how you came to be in practice at NYU. Yeah, so um, kind of the background regards spine actually stemmed from a long time ago. Uh, my first exposure was with a neurosurgeon, which kind of pushed me towards going to medical school at University of Michigan. Then I got interested in pain management, which led down the road of spine, right? Pain is a big part of spine. And I thought, what's a better way to treat spine through surgery, right? Um, which then I went on to do my neurosurgery training at UC San Francisco. I did a spinal deformity fellowship with Dr. Christopher Ames at UCSF after. Then I wanted to also explore the realm of orthopedics a little bit more. So I did an orthopedic pediatric fellowship with Dr. Amr Sandani at Shriners in Philadelphia. So now at NYU, as a neurosurgeon, I do have a pediatric scoliosis practice in addition to an adult spinal deformity practice. Um, and that's really opened up a lot of avenues in terms of my clinical interests and clinical research, right? One of this being, you know, how do we resuscitate patients in the operating room, getting them out of surgery very safely and having a good outcome. So a lot of my research interests is really stemmed around that concept. 
And was there any specific patient experience or trend that you noted with intraoperative resuscitation that made you particularly interested in cell salvage? Absolutely. And again, it kind of goes back to my decision of truly pursuing neurosurgery versus another subspecialty. One was cardiac surgery. The way cell saver is utilizing cardiac surgery is like what it's designed to be. So a lot of the blood that's collected during these very bloody procedures are high volume output surgeries that go directly from the heart or the blood vessel directly into the cell savage machine. Now, the way we do spine surgery modern day is with a lot of electrocautery, a lot of heat to get good hemostasis. And, a lot, and many times when we're operating, we often see a lot of smoke. You can feel the heat generating. And it's a very different way, a different environment these cells are collected in, right? So inherently, I felt that this was very different from what Cell Saber was made to do. In addition, clinically, we see that when we give back Cell Saber, we're not seeing the real clinical benefits or equivalent benefits that we get with giving them blood bank blood, right? Sometimes we're seeing coagulopathy, we're seeing higher drain outputs, and we're still giving patients blood. So this kind of led to the, you know, the question of what are we really giving back? You know, what is the quality of blood? Because the best practice, involving practices to really be critical of what we're doing at the time to really understand if what we're doing is the best thing. So that kind of generated a high interest of understanding, um, trying to understand exactly what we're giving back in a very scientific level. That's fantastic. Um, and so would you mind for this specific project uh, giving us a, a short overview of your methodology? Um, and and the, one of the things I'm most interested in uh, personally is the way that you've tested the health of the red blood cells that you're salvaging. Yeah, so we, we wanted a direct sample of what we were giving back, right? That was number one. So the, the basis of the study was really to compare different blood products. And the best way is to compare what you actually give in the operating room. So each patient's going to have a different morphology of RBCs, red blood cells. They're going to have a different number of red blood cells. So it's critical to get a baseline. So we had three samples that we tested and compared. One was getting a sample from the arterial line in the operating room to measure a baseline individual sample. And then we would get a sample of the actual cell saver right before it's given out of the bag. So we would actually take a sample of what would be given to the patient as one sample. And then the third sample is what we have from the blood bank, what we normally would give. So based on those three samples, we would run morphology, which is based on peripheral smears. But in addition, we utilize something called Raman microscopy which is kind of a newer technology that we use in active time in the operating room to actually evaluate for um, tumor specimens, actually. It's to look at the histology of tumors, but we adapted that technology into looking at that morphology of red blood cells. Then we created actually a artificial intelligence that's able to help us classify these thousands of morphologies and tell us what's a viable cell and what's not. And they're also called reticulocytes and acanthocytes. So that's another way we looked at the morphology. The other thing we looked at that's important is also looking at the laboratory measures, right? Blood banks, as a quality measure, the way they 
determine that is actually measure things like homolysis, right? And they come up with a homolysis index. So that's one of the key measures that we looked at in our study is the blood we're getting back actually good enough? Would it meet the FDA requirements or guidelines to actually give back to the patient? So those are the main two ways we were um, scientifically looking into what we're giving back. That is incredibly elegant. Uh, and I imagine that it wasn't easy even building the measurement tools, particularly the machine learning algorithms. Is that something that you've published on previously or will that be you know, looked at even further in depth uh, when you put this out for the masses? Yeah, I think that has a great potential on its own. And it's something that I have to credit my partners, the medical student I'm working with, the resident I'm working with that have that expertise that it's able to generate something like that. It required a lot of manual labor in um, teaching the computer basically what's abnormal morphology, labeling thousands or tens of thousands of cells um, to for the computer to be able to uh, put together an algorithm that's able to automatically detect these cells. So it's an algorithm that's yet published. I think it's applicable to a lot of different um, types of tests or other tissues that we can look at. Um, so that specific part of it has yet to be published, but we have an abstract actually pertaining just to that methodology um, that should come out pretty soon. Um, so it was a work that was needed. It took quite a bit of time, but it made our process very easy now. We can analyze a sample in less than two minutes with over 90% accuracy in identifying these abnormal cells. Oh, wow. It sounds like another award-winning paper on the way. <laughs> I, I, I'm hopeful. Excellent. And so then I guess the question is, based on what you've learned, is the number of healthy RBCs that we're returning to the patient actually clinically significant? So based on our, you know, our AI technology and morphology, 30% of the cells are definitely irreversibly injured based on morphology. And it's kind of tricky because in the world of hematology and red blood cells, they're not really live cells. They don't have a nucleus. So technically they're not live. The question is, are they reversible when transfused into the patient, right? Um, and based on the laboratory testing that we did on all of our samples, the hemolysis index is higher than the threshold of what would be allowed to be given in every single sample. So this tells us even based on that quantitative um, measurement, we should not be giving this blood back to the patient, right? In every single sample. And the hemolysis index is probably three times as high as um, what we see in baseline or even in donor blood from the blood bank, right? And this is not only FDA, but this is based on European standards, too. I think that's as close to a hot take as you can have in medical sciences, uh, something that, you know, so many hospitals use. And you've basically taught us, like, this is not what we thought it was. We're not putting back what we really thought in the patients. And so to that end, this is your preliminary data on the first 35 patients. Right. So what's the future of the collective cohort, um, and what are other clinical questions that you're going to look at with this? Yeah, so our goal is to enroll a total of 100 patients. 
we're getting pretty close. We're actually probably in the 60s right now. Um, but the, the findings just based on morphology, on the labs, is so significant that we can't really ignore it. And there are downstream effects. So we're actually measuring um, post-operative effects, delay of resuscitation of these patients, drain output, what happens to you know LFTs, those sort of things are things that we want to look at in association with, you know, transfusing cell saver in the setting of spine surgery. So those are what we're concentrating on now. Um, but because our findings cannot be ignored as a hospital initiative, especially for pediatric patients, at least our hospital, we're very careful about transfusing patients, especially in the younger population and giving back cell saver even if it's 50 cc's, very minimal. A lot of times at the end of the case, we have something there. We think, okay, it doesn't hurt. Let's give it back. But maybe it's not good to give it back, especially when the patient doesn't need it, right? Maybe we're getting dinged for that transfusion and it's not so helpful for the patient. So at a lot of levels, cost, administrative hospital, um, quality of care, and most important, patient outcome, it probably needs some sort of practice change, right? Um, I think the data is strong right now for some, you know, I think some surgeons are changing a little bit and thinking about a little bit about whether they should use cell saver during spine surgery or whether they should give it back. But I think once we get that 100 patients, we're going to have a pretty strong subset of data to really rely on. But at the end of the day, we also have to expand this out because different sites harvest cells differently. They use different machines. They have different um, technicians to help them do it. And then we have to think about what surgeries are important. Where should we use it? Should we use it for ALIFs, right? Big vascular injuries. If you prevent that, you know, that one patient that happens to have a vessel injury and you can salvage those cells, that's the way it's made for. Maybe during PSOs, right? High flow blood loss, not exposed to high electrocautery. So maybe we need to be more selective. Dr. Lau, this is absolutely fantastic and incredible. It is not at all surprising that this paper was a White Cloud award-winning paper uh, because it's something that truly can change practice for a large swath of neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons across the country taking care of scoliosis. So I thank you for your work and I look forward for everything to come. Um, and for everyone who has tuned in to this episode of Scoliosis Dialogues, thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for hearing about both of these papers. And we look forward to seeing you for the next episode. Thanks. Great. Thank you. The Scoliosis Research Society is a nonprofit professional organization made up of physicians and allied health personnel. Their primary focus is on providing continuing medical education for healthcare professionals and on funding and supporting research in spinal deformities. Please visit srs.org for further information. 